Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Where Work Meets Life. I'm really excited about today's episode on never not working, how always on cultures are bad for people and business with Dr. Melissa Clark, an associate professor of industrial organizational psychology from the University of Georgia, an author of a very exciting upcoming book we're going to talk about, and a thought leader on overwork and workaholism. So in my practice working with organizations and individuals for almost 25 years now, I'm continuing to see increasing rates of overload, stress, and burnout. Post-pandemic, it's not getting any better. And the lure of constantly achieving and producing is something that I've grappled with personally as a, a business owner, a serial entrepreneur, a mom of three. There's always lots of things on the go. And I grapple with my own levels of overload. And I wanted to dive deeper into what work addiction is, achievement addiction, workaholism and I stumbled across the great Melissa Clark and she's an IO or industrial organizational psychologist like I am and uh, a foremost researcher on workaholism and overwork and she also runs a lab at the University of Georgia called the Healthy Work Lab because it's all about being healthy at work and healthy in our lives and yeah I'm going to pass the mic over to Melissa Melissa, to tell us a little bit more about herself, if I left out anything important, Melissa. I think you covered it quite well. Thank you for that introduction, and thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here talking with you about this and about this topic that I'm really passionate about. Awesome. Well, it was sure an honor pre-reading and endorsing your book, and I guess what I want to know, first of all, is what led you to focus on overwork and workaholism, Melissa? Yeah, that's a great question. I think I'm guilty of what many of us call me-search, that similar to you, I've struggled my whole life with feeling like I just needed to constantly be doing, having to prove myself. And this started, you know, from a very young age uh, in grade school and then continued through college and into my work career. And then into grad school and beyond. Um, <clears throat> and as I finished things off my checklist, I would just continue to add more and more to my plate. Um, and in grad school, uh, there was a class project, actually, that we got to choose the topic that we were going to study. And I came up with the idea of studying this thing I had read about called workaholism. I wasn't really sure what it was, if it was a real thing or just kind of one of those quirky terms. Uh, so I really dove into the research. And from there, I guess the rest is history. I just kind of stayed in the same realm in terms of research topic because there were there was just so much more to uncover as I uncovered a little bit. I um, just kind of started peel peeling off the layers to understand what this concept of workaholism was. Um, and uh, so, yeah, it really was about trying to understand myself and hopefully practice what I preach <laughs> in terms of strategies for combating workaholism. Uh, in my own life, and I'm still a work in progress on that. I'll be quite honest with you about that. <laughs> 
No, and I really appreciate your your authenticity, and it's a continual struggle for me too. And I hope that our conversation can shed some light on what's happening with the topic of workaholism. And you're from the U.S. I'm from Canada. We had a conversation before the podcast on how I would argue that the U.S. struggles more than more with overwork than most other countries in the world. Would you agree? Uh, it's definitely up there. There are some other countries and cultures that struggle just as much, if not more, than uh, the U.S. Uh, Japanese culture, China, uh, South Korea, um, all have a very workaholic culture. Um, interestingly enough, the I would say the area of the world that studies workaholism the most is uh, Europe. And I feel like there are a lot of European countries that actually do a much better job than us uh, on a national scale of, um, you know, limiting work hours and valuing time off, you know, for example, maternity and mater paternity leave uh, or just vacation in general. Uh, so I found that really interesting as I started getting into the research that, you know, some cultures that actually I think do a much better job, uh, there are some researchers that also um, study this topic. And it just goes to show, I think, how important this idea of not overextending ourselves um, is, is really universal. Uh, so yes, I agree with you. U.S. in particular has, has a culture problem. Um, but it's really something that uh, people struggle with everywhere. Mm -hmm. And and I can see that. And it just becomes such a part or a fabric of the way things are that, you know, maybe I could see why it's not studied as much because it's not perceived as much of a problem as it is. Exactly. Yeah. Someone I interviewed um, put it that um, it's like water to a fish. It's just all around them. They're breathing it. They don't even notice um, that they're in this environment. But um, it's so ingrained in us from from such a young age. Um, and, and I think this is why um, still, I, you know, when I tell people that I study workaholism, they're kind of like, ah, yeah, that's a thing. Sure. They don't really take it very seriously. Um, but I think that once you break it down into what workaholism is and the different components, um, I think people can start to relate to it a little bit better. Uh, this is one thing, I guess, if you don't mind me kind of going on my, my soapbox about, about workaholism. It's not just this uh, either or. Either you are a workaholic or you're not a workaholic. Um, it's a spectrum, right? So we can all have workaholic tendencies and so the way or or habits and so the way I think about it is I there might be aspects that I struggle with more than others and we we each might have workaholic tendencies in certain areas but it's not something that you can say oh I'm I'm not a workaholic uh, and so I don't have to worry about it. Um and we can probably go into if you want the different aspects of workaholism that I think people might want to pay attention to uh with themselves. Yeah, I would love that. Go ahead. Okay. All right. So the I break it down into four main parts. So four main components. Uh, so there's the behavioral part that people see that's the most obvious. People are working all the time, right? They're putting in long hours, uh, not calling it quits, working on weekends or vacation. I think that's kind of the most obvious aspect of workaholism. Um, and, you know, 
something that people can start to notice their own tendencies and habits around uh, their behaviors about working, whether they are able to shut it off um, and stop working during these times when they're supposed to be doing other things. Um, but that's just one piece of it. Uh, there's a motivational component that I find really fascinating in that a lot of individuals that I speak with and speaking from personal experience, it's this uh, inner compulsion or feeling like I ought to be working all the time. Uh, and this is that thing I was mentioning at the beginning that I've struggled with my whole life, uh, feeling like if I'm if I'm not doing something, then um, something's wrong. And so I always have to find myself being occupied by some task. Um, and so that that inner compulsion, I think, is a big piece of um, what workaholism is. And so reflecting on that, you know, why are you working? Is it because you feel like you ought to be working? That's a sign that there, you might have some workaholic tendencies. Um, and then the other two components are uh, there's an emotional component and a cognitive component. So the emotional component it goes along with that inner gut feeling. Uh, so when I feel that, I also start to feel anxious and I might start to feel guilty, like, ooh, I really should be working. I know people are counting on me and this is due. And um, and so these negative emotions kind of creep up. And so the, if you know that's a component of workaholism. And then the cognitive piece is that you can't really put it down in your brain. So you're always thinking about uh, work, or things that need to be done. Um, and it's difficult for you to psychologically detach from your work. And so, again, it's not just an either or. You can have tendencies to, you know, think about work could be your like your big problem. Um, and so maybe, maybe you can physically stop working, but you're still thinking about it a lot. Um, and so, there might be some aspects of workaholism that you have and some that you don't, or you might relate to all of those things. And it's it's kind of like the the more boxes you can check, the the more you might need to reflect on what you're doing and if this is uh, a concern um, or something that you might want to um, work on. Well, I think the job of a professor like you are and the job of an entrepreneur and business owner like I am, both of those are, are prone to thinking about work a lot and never feeling like you're caught up. Yeah, there never is a caught up. We will never be done with everything we need to get done. And that, that's the struggle, right? And that's what, <laughs> yeah, that's what kind of feeds into these um, always thinking about work and always feeling guilty um, and trying to reconcile that with the, the fact that really there will not be a point when when we can just set everything to the side and be like, okay, I'm actually done. I finished everything I need to do, and now I can enjoy my weekend. Um, there has to be some sort of conscious effort to have it be good enough. Yeah, and it's your ability to be able to shut that off and put those boundaries around it and be okay with getting it out of your head, getting it out of your heart, your emotions, guilt, all of that. Because, yeah, it just can eat you up inside and never leave you, never leave you alone. Yeah. And I'm not against hard work either. It's not like I'm saying, oh, we just all need to work, you know, less hard and not worry about this thing called work so much. Um, you know, I'm really passionate about my work. And so that's another aspect. I do feel like because I am so passionate, because I love my work, um, then it 
it's kind of a, it blurs the boundaries between what is uh, work engagement and what is workaholism. And, you know, I think anything taken to the extreme can be a bad thing. And so when people say back to me, oh, well, I'm not a workaholic. I'm just, you know, I just love my work and I love what I do. Um, to me, that's great. And I can relate to that. But also at the same time, that doesn't necessarily mean that you don't also struggle with some of these workaholic tendencies. You can have both at the same time. Um, and I talk about that a little bit in the book, um, that it's possible to be an engaged worker and also a workaholic at the same time. Um, and and having those high levels of work engagement is not really um going to completely buffer you from some of these negative outcomes that I'm finding. <laughs> you did a great job of describing that in the book, Melissa. So let's talk about the book, Never Not Working, Why the Always-On Culture is Bad for Business and How to Fix It. Great title. Um, tell us a little bit more about, well, what inspired you to write it and when people can get their hands on this book. Yeah, so I'm super excited about the book. I feel so lucky and honored to have had this opportunity to uh, to write this, and I hope that people like it. Um, so the book is set to come out February 6th of 2024. Uh, you can pre-order it now, um, and uh, it's available wherever books are sold. Um, so the book really was inspired by my research over the past decade and a half on the topic of workaholism. You know, I had been publishing a lot in academic journals, but it doesn't really reach a wider audience. It's kind of like academics talking to other academics. Um, and I really wanted to make more of an impact on uh, workplaces and, and workers. Uh, and so when I got the opportunity to write this book um, with Harvard Business Press, um, really, it was just the perfect synergy of being able to summarize the research that I've done, but also to have the opportunity to uh, put some stories in there that really, when you publish academic works, you can't really put stories in there. Uh, and so I felt like it was a perfect blend of, uh, you know, bringing the science to light. And it's very, um, I worked very hard to have, you know, it very strong research findings backing the things that I'm talking about, but supplementing that with interviews, personal interviews that I did with individuals. Uh, a lot of them are members of an uh, organization called Workaholics Anonymous. And so the organization, you know, connected me with many um, people that are members and they were so generous with their time and sharing their really personal stories about their own workaholism, how it affected their lives, the people around them. Uh, I also interviewed a lot of uh, individuals from the business world who are uh, working to fight for uh, a better balance. And so people from the four-day work movement, um, scholars who have researched uh, these aspects like work recovery and breaks, um, and individuals that have implemented things in their own organizations. And so it's a mix of the research, these personal interviews, um, and then the thought leaders in the field, uh, in addition to, you know, some of my own thoughts, kind of synthesizing all of that together. Um, so I, I really had a great time writing this book, and it was super 
it was it was a great reflective opportunity for me to really uh again try to take all of this advice and the science and really um think about how workaholism has affected me personally and how I want to move forward you know with my career in my life um using all that science hopefully for the greater good but also uh, to help myself as well <laughs> that's wonderful and so workaholics anonymous i bet not many people know that exists so how does one <laughs> where is it located and how does one join it and what types of professions end up in that organization all kinds of professions the people i interviewed they you know not just with the the workaholics anonymous members but also from prior work that i've done pretty much any career you could think of any occupation you could think of there's workaholics everywhere it's so it's not limited to just lawyers and doctors and professors and entrepreneurs it's really um something that anyone can struggle with in any occupation um so people find information about workaholics anonymous and i'm i'm not a member of the organization so i'm not like a spokesperson for them um but you know you could find out just by searching online um they have a, a website and tons of resources online uh, that if someone wanted to get involved, they could connect um, and join the organization. I know they have, you know, even an annual conference. Um, and so, yeah, I encourage people to, to check it out. Really, um, it's helped so many people um, and, you know, life-changing experiences that people were telling me about. So, great. So, from from your research um, and your experience so far, get, getting this book born, <laughs> um, what trends are you seeing post pandemic around overwork, workaholism, and burnout? You know, even before the pandemic, stress and burnout was a huge problem. The World Health Organization, I believe, they put out right before the pandemic um, a statement that stress uh, was basically um, the health epidemic of the 21st century. So that was even before the pandemic. Uh, then there's some studies after the pandemic that are showing that stress and burnout are even worse than before. Um, over a quarter of uh, Americans say they're so stressed out on most days that they can't even function. And so this was a study by the American Psychological Association that, that found that shocking statistic um, and a, a large percentage of Americans, I think over a quarter, are struggling with mental health issues and that increase from the year prior. Um, so I think COVID and all of the external stressors going, you know, that happened at the same time, um, we're only human. We can only handle so much stress. If we already had a stressful work environment, we all have obligations at home. Lots of us have kids and families. Um, and then you add all these additional stressors of the the most you know consequential thing that's happened to all of us to go through a global pandemic um, on top of our regular stress um, it's not a surprise that um, it took a lot out of us and um, without the time to recover uh, from all of these stressors happening at the same time uh, burnout is is pretty likely and so I see rates of burnout 
even higher than before the pandemic. Um, and and I just think also we, I don't know about you, but I know I picked up some bad habits during COVID in terms of um, being more available uh, via email and um, you know phone than I was before. Um, and also working at different times more consistently than before. Uh, Microsoft did a really interesting study of workers uh, with their platform teams during COVID. And they found based on keystroke data that they were analyzing that for about a third of the people, there was a third peak of productivity that happened at night. Probably if they had kids, it was after the kids went to bed. Uh, they What do they do? They get on their laptop and they start emailing and chatting with their coworkers. Um, and so that late night peak productivity, what happens is that we get used to people corresponding with us at that time. And so then we expect a response. And then so they respond. And it's just kind of this cycle of um, availability that we've, we've kind of gotten into the habit of. And I feel like a lot of us haven't broken that habit yet. I've followed those same studies. And I, th- I think it's a real shame that the great reset of the pandemic, which was a chance to slow down, to build in more time for self-care, reflection, flexible time, etc. It seems like we didn't a lot of people didn't learn. A lot of organizational leaders didn't learn from that great reset. And then here we are back to higher burnout and overwork rates and stress rates than before. I find that really, really unfortunate. I agree. I feel like there was a moment of time, especially when we showed that we can actually be really productive over remote work. Uh, Before the pandemic, organizations had pushed back and said, Oh no, we can't. We can't be fully remote. It's just never going to be possible. And then they were forced to do this, and they were like, "Okay, yes, it actually works." The research shows people were more productive um, working remotely in some ways than in person. Um, and and so I feel like there is this, like you said, a perfect opportunity to embrace that. Um, and we saw a lot more of of people showing their whole lives to their coworkers. You know, kids in the background, um, all you know in that same space together, realizing people have a life outside of work um, and really being supportive of that. Um, And then we see this almost like backlash, uh, you know, recently of organizations saying, oh, um, forget this remote work thing. You have to come back to work at least this number of days per per week. Um, And not all companies are turning, you know, around and doing that, but a lot are. And I feel like we have a very... Um, we short memory of, you know, how actually things work pretty well when we're not. I know short memory is the perfect way. And then this is my area of research and thought leadership is what exactly you explained. And I feel sometimes like I'm banging my head against a wall, <laughs> but we have our work cut out for us, Melissa. I think this whole topic of overwork, burnout, you know, the work that you're doing is super important and we need to keep fighting the good fight um, and saying these things. And I would like to ask you to dispel some of the myths that people have about workaholism that surprise people from your book. Can you share a couple of things there? 
Yeah. So I, like you said, I do have a part in the book where I talk about some myths. Um, if I may shoot a question back to you, because I know you read my book, uh, I'm just curious what myths other people think are the most surprising. Because to me, um, it's hard for me to distinguish, be you know, between what the layperson would be surprised by. Uh, was there anything that really struck you? Well, I think the one that's really interesting in, in general is that workaholics produce more. I mean, that's what people think, right? So the person who stays till midnight at the office and stuff, but you really dispelled that. I forget the exact numbers, but maybe you can tell us. I agree. That seems to be one of the big ones, right? Thinking, oh, because they're working long hours, surely they're more productive. Um, but yeah, the so I conducted a meta-analysis where we synthesized all of the research to that date on the relationship between level of workaholism and um, performance ratings. And we basically find no relationship. And that is including if they were rating themselves or the bosses uh, rating their performance. So no relationship there. Um, and then we, you know, my research and other people's research uh, continually shows over and over again that um, not only do we not find that relationship with performance ratings, but we we find that uh, workaholism is related to a whole host of other detrimental outcomes, um, such as um, workaholics tend to be sometimes not the best co-workers and bosses uh, for a variety of reasons. They can be difficult to work with sometimes. Um, they tend to be perfectionists and so maybe holding up projects uh, that, you know, is, is holding up the team or creating more work for others, unnecessary work perhaps, um, poor delegation, poor scoping, you know, not really uh, accounting for the amount of time that it actually might take to complete a project and uh, over promising to customers, oh, we'll get it done next week when actually it's a month long project. So what does that mean? Everyone's working late into the night um, and on the weekend. Uh, and also they tend to, because of these, this compulsion and these negative emotions that are kind of driving the workaholic behavior, uh, a lot of people I spoke with talked about how because they were always feeling anxious and in this fight or flight mode all the time, everything's a crisis, that they put that crisis on everyone else. And so think about working in that type of environment when someone's freaking out about all the deadlines, all the work to do, everything has to be perfect. Um, but also they have a hard time delegating to others. Uh, it's no wonder why we're not finding that link with productivity and performance. Um, because of all these other aspects of workaholism that um, just simply spending the hours working, it, it's not really going to um, lead us to the same kind of success as if we were working smarter, not longer. Mm -hmm. And that I think you really answered my next question in that if you have a workaholic culture with a whole bunch of workaholic tendencies happening within it, it ultimately impacts the business success, right? Because things are inefficient, people burn out, etc. Yeah, it really does. And, you know, there may be some short-term uh, 
wins, I guess. But that's the thing. I mean, we're playing the long game. We don't want people to constantly turn over and have to retrain new workers. Um, you know, eventually people, when they're not taking that time for rest and recovery, they're going to burn out. They just will. It's a matter of time. Or their bodies just might start shutting down on them. I mean, you would be astounded some of the stories that that I was told um, from talking with individuals from Workaholics Anonymous, um, having multiple heart attacks, autoimmune issues. Uh, I mean, workaholism is linked to increased risk of cancer. Uh, I mean, just heart problems, um, high blood pressure, you name it. I mean, so it might not be that uh, the individual experiences just burnout, but but their health, you know, at one point is most likely just going to give out. Um, and so one of the chapters talks about, one, how do you identify this culture of overwork? What are the things you can look for? What are the signals that your organization is, um, is uh, showing to employees? You know, things, for example... Uh, what are your norms and practices about own communication and time off? Who's rewarded and why are they rewarded? Um, so spotting those signals, but then also strategies for combating that culture of overwork. And so some of this stuff is, uh, you know, from talking with individuals in the four-day work movement and other sorts of um, spheres where they are trying to make an impact, trying to make some change. Um, and, you know, it's changing a culture is not quick. It's not easy. There's no, you know, perfect solution. And there's gonna be a lot of growing pains. And, you know, taking one step forward and three steps back. But I mean, we got to start somewhere is what I figure, you know, we can't just throw up our hands and say, this is the way it is. Because it doesn't have to be. Exactly. And I think it'll be really coming from the people, this post-pandemic overwork society. The people are going to continue to speak out and speak with their feet, too, by leaving workaholic bosses and workaholic cultures. Yes, exactly. I mean, we saw that during the pandemic with the Great Resignation. I mean, people were leaving um, in droves. And I know I keep on talking about the four-day <laughs> week movement, but I mean, the the one thing I really love about this is they've collected so much data to support these um, interventions, you know, with pre and post data. Um, and it's really quite astounding. And one of the things that shocked me the most was the um, the data collected during COVID of organizations implementing a four-day week and responses from individuals basically saying there is not any sort of amount of pay that they would accept to go back to a five-day work week. Um, but also things like turnover declined in these organizations at the same time when the Great Resignation was happening. And turnover everyone else, everywhere else was increasing and it was a huge problem. Um, but for these organizations, it was it was going down and people were, you know, all of the metrics. I mean, just the data is just overwhelming. Um, and I, I'm a big fan of following what the data are saying. 
<laughs> Me too. And I'm actually interviewing Andrew Barnes on the podcast, and Joe O'Connor. And I'm so excited about exploring the four-day week because it's a close cousin to flexibility and remote work, those other topics that I've focused my career on. So what do you listen to or read for your own development, Melissa? I'm really curious if you could share a couple of resources with the audience. I have some books that I read when I was writing my own book that um, I really just love. Um, and so one of them is the 40-week book. I'm kind of pointing at my bookshelf behind me. Um, but there's also this one. It's kind of, it's older. Um, there's a, a new one. Her second book is coming out. But Bridget Schulte, she has this book that we talked about um, uh, prior to this podcast. Actually, coincidentally, we both were talking about how we love this book. Um, Overwhelmed, Work, Love, and Play When No One Has the Time is the title of her book. Um, again, solid research um, that she puts into this. Um, her new book coming out, I think, is called Overwork. Like, we're over it. We're done. Um, so I can't wait for that to come out as well. Um, there, So podcasts, I actually don't listen to a lot of work-related podcasts. That's my escape from work. Um, but if I were to listen to a podcast related to this topic, um, I think people people should check out, it's called Thriving at Work, and it's two IO psychologists, uh, Patricia Grabarek and Katina Sawyer, and they're really great. They're um, super engaging, uh, but their podcast, Thriving at Work, just talks about all of these aspects of, you know, how do we um, really have uh, a, a, a happy workplace and less stress. Um, and they they pull out research studies and kind of dive into that study and some takeaways. It's really, I, I just love that podcast. Wonderful. That is a great recommendation. We'll share it in the show notes and in the newsletter, etc. And my final question for you, Melissa, is if you could have one wish for a better world when it comes to people's working lives, what would it be? That's a great question. Um, you know, I just wish that when it comes to work, people would feel safe, supported, and personally fulfilled um, in whatever way that, you know, matters to them. Um, that would, that would be my wish for a better working world. Well, I think that the research and the beautiful book you're putting into the world, Never Not Working, is going to make some strides on that. So thank you, Melissa. Thank you so much for what you're doing to move things forward in today's workplaces and cultures. Well, thanks for everything you do. This podcast, you know, definitely... Um, is also making a difference. So thank you. I really appreciate that. And I'm looking so forward to getting my physical copy of your book. I have it on pre-order and I'd encourage our guests to take a look at this wonderful resource, Never Not Working. Thank you, Melissa, and stay well. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Where Work Meets Life. If you found this content valuable, please rate and review the episode and share with others who may benefit. Visit me on my website at drlaura.live and sign up for my monthly e-newsletter full of tips and resources. 
I'm also a passionate keynote speaker and would be delighted to speak with you on your speaking needs. Stay well.